podcast listeners. I want to introduce you to our podcast director of education, my colleague at CHOP, Dr. Jill Posner. In addition to all the behind the scenes work Jill does for the podcast, Jill, you have a special announcement about an upcoming educational event. Take it away, Jill. Thanks, Bob. So here's a special announcement. There's still time to register for our annual CHOP Continuing Medical Education course. We call it Innovations in PEM, Consensus, Controversy, and the Cutting Edge. This year's course dates are November 3rd through 5th, and you're welcome to come visit us in Philadelphia, or you can tune in from your own living room. This is the 38th consecutive year of the course, um, but this is the first year that Yen Tay, uh, the co-director, and I are offering it as a hybrid course with options for both live and virtual attendance. Jill, can you give us a few details about the course? Sure, Bob. So in the morning, there'll be lectures given by some of the leading experts in pediatric emergency medicine, several of whom have been guests on the podcast. And in the afternoon, we'll have sessions for hands-on workshops, including a point-of-care ultrasound workshop, radiology workshop, and sports medicine workshops. Also in the afternoons, we'll have our famous procedure fair, some small group case-based discussions, and high-fidelity simulations. The lecture component in the mornings will be live streamed for virtual attendance options and the afternoon sessions are going to be for in-person only. We're going to be adhering to all the local and national guidelines for COVID precautions, including verification of vaccination status, indoor masking, social distancing, and meals will be boxed. So please do visit us online by Googling Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Continuing Medical Education or you can go to our website, which is chop.cloud-cme.com. If you have any questions, feel free to contact us at chopcme. And both Yen and I hope to see you there. Welcome to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. My name is Jess, and I am a fourth-year indie PhD student at the Pullman School of Medicine and the producer for today's episode on bronchiolitis an episode that we started putting together almost a year ago. The host of our episode today is Dr. Bob Belfer, an attending physician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and a professor of pediatrics at the Perlman School of Medicine. We are thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Joseph Zork, who is also an attending physician and a professor of pediatrics at CHOP. Dr. Zork is also the director of emergency information system and the holder of the Mark Fishman Endowed Chair in Genomics and Computational Science at CHOP. Thanks everyone for joining us for this episode. Thank you, Jess, for that introduction and welcome back to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. Joe, it's been a long time. When we first discussed debuting this podcast, bronchiolitis was one of the first episodes that we wanted to air. And this past winter, Joe, I was waiting and waiting. And there were no cases of bronchiolitis, no cases of RSV. So we had to push you back, Joe, to our, I don't know what we're on now, 12th or 13th episode. But before we get into bronchiolitis, Joe, a few icebreaker questions. Our listeners are very aware. We'd like to ask our guests, Joe, what's your favorite disease to take care of in the ED? Uh, That's an easy one for me. I would say croup. Um, Croup is a disease that has all the aspects I like of it. We've done amazing research on it. Um, know very well what treatments work well. Fantastic randomized trials that tell you, you know, in large populations, uh, 
you know, how to treat those children. And you see it every day when you give them oral steroids, observe them. Um, it, it's a very satisfying disease because I think over the time of my lifetime in pediatrics, we've gone from a disease that was kind of scary and a lot of kids got admitted to, it's pretty rare to admit a kid to the hospital for croup nowadays. Um, and fortunately, with our little COVID changes, we're all seeing a ton of croup right now. So we should be very happy. <laughs> great, great. Thanks, Joe. Uh, another icebreaker question, Joe. Many of our listeners may not know, in addition to being a expert researcher, an IT expert, Joe, you are a little bit of a wine connoisseur. You and your wife host the division pretty much on an annual or every other year basis where we do a wine testing get together. Joe, many of our listeners are getting back from a busy ER shift where they had a lot of ER holds, a lot of patients in the waiting room. Joe, give them your best. Let's start red wine and what white wine. What should they be buying or drinking after a busy shift or maybe even during sure. a busy shift? <laughs> uh, red wines. I'm, I'm a fan of Malbec, you know, this Argentinian wine often and uh, really nice. Uh, so that's, you know, full body and uh, enjoyable. And in the white wine department, my wife and I are we're fans of the uh, Sauvignon Blancs from uh, New Zealand. Um, those are fruity, very light, very pleasurable. Great afternoon air shift. Recommend that. Awesome. Thank you, Joe. All right. Let's let's dive into our content now. Bronchiolitis. I like to start off each of the podcasts with a little bit of history of the disease. This history, RSV was discovered in 1956. And uh, up until about a year or so ago, Joe, we were seeing over 50,000 hospitalizations for bronchiolitis in the United States and close to 300,000 plus ED visits for bronchiolitis. But as we all know, the pandemic of COVID hit us, and we saw not only a chop, but in the entire United States and worldwide, a 98% reduction in those numbers during the 2020-2021 fall and winter season. Joe, this is an easy one. Where was RSV? Well, it's still out there, and we're seeing it come back with a vengeance right now. Those chickens are coming home to roost. So it's not a not a virus that we're going to get rid of. Flu is a different thing. That's kind of interesting. I, I don't know about that. That would, that could be another episode that could be very interesting. But RSV is out there. It circulates. You know, it's generally seasonal. But even when you talk about it with experts, that that seasonal variation, you always wonder what happens at the equator because they don't really have seasons. And uh, so it, it's always around. And you know, for a year we got a little bit of a respite uh, because. Everybody took put their babies in a bubble, you know, and uh, and they were not getting exposed to that virus, and we were wearing masks and stuff like that. I'm I'm not sure masks are that effective for RSV because it's large droplets and contact, but um, but they probably help. And so we got a little bit of respite there. I think I think on the positive side, the big concern in my mind was that COVID nineteen uh, SARS CoV two would cause bronchiolitis, and that we would see a lot of babies with. SARS bronchiolitis, COVID bronchiolitis. Um, and as of now, I don't think we've seen a lot of that. That The jury could still be out on that. But um, but the, the positivity rate for COVID-19 and the kids who were admitted for bronchiolitis at CHOP, I looked at that, it was about 3%. It was lower than the general screening population for kids coming in with, you know, just random admission reasons. So um, so it doesn't seem so far that COVID causes bronchiolitis, which is a good thing. But uh, but now we're dealing with RSV coming back and other viruses too, rhinovirus that cause similar syndromes. Right, Joe. So we got a reprieve last fall and winter, but as you pointed out, it came back with a vengeance. And as early as this spring, May and June, we started to see cases. We saw cases all summer. Talk to us about why May and June, why this summer? 
did we see uh, such a large increase in the number of bronchiolitis slash RSV cases? Um, I think this probably was related to the relaxing of social distancing. So, you know, we, we held pretty firm on that through the winter. And then that started to relax as the vaccine came out in May and June. And so that those viruses started coming back then. And now, you know, if you look at the CDC numbers and stuff, we're, we're about two or three months ahead of the curve of RSV of where we would be normally. So we're, we're hitting a peak stride. The question is, what's the peak going to be? <laughs> and that's the scary one, because if you look at some of modeling studies that were done even, you know, early in the pandemic, you know, and it makes complete sense, there's a whole generation of babies that did not get RSV. So you could easily imagine that it will be the worst RSV season of anyone's ever seen. Uh, it's probably likely. Yeah. So. Right. So you mentioned that, Joe, there's that the one to two year olds did not see RSV last year. Mm -hmm. So we have right. that population. And then we have, of course, all the zero to one year olds. And in addition, mothers weren't exposed to it. And there's some thought that if the mothers build up antibody, they would pass that on to their babies. So this is really a triple or quadruple whammy as far as the number of susceptible not only infants, but children between the ages of one and two who are at risk for bronchiolitis. Correct. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of the one to two year olds in the past, you know, had sort of, uh, you know, might, might have had more likely rhinovirus induced wheezing. Now they might have RSV. And I, I think we're seeing it in our EDs. They have, you know, the asthmaitis, um, which is they're wheezing, but, you know, our treatments don't work quite as well because they have you know, lower respiratory infection from RSV or rhinovirus because they don't have immunity. And uh, so they don't respond as as well, uh, which which we're used to in a in younger infants that, that we deal with that and, and that they're not going to improve the treatment and then we have to figure out a plan. But the, the older kids, we're used to them responding. So I think we have to adjust our expectations a little bit there. They'll still probably be fine. But, you know, we have to adjust our expectations that they're not going to, you know, completely clear out with uh, some bronchodilators and steroids. Right. And we're going to talk a lot about treatment, Joe, or the lack of treatment for bronchiolitis shortly. Uh, but let's just stay a little bit more on epidemiology. Uh, RSV is back with a vengeance, as we talked about, Joe. Where are flu cases? Is it still too early? Or how come flu didn't come back in the spring and summer as we relax restrictions? Yeah, I, I'm not an expert on flu, but um, you know, I think a lot of people are scratching their heads about it. And I've seen things written about, is flu going to come back? Is COVID going to supplant it? I, I would be very surprised about that. But, you know, flu is complicated. It comes every year. It spreads across the uh, the globe in a somewhat predictable fashion. Um, I know Asia is a lot involved in, in, in where the origin comes. And, and so a lot of these practices and social distancing in other countries and limited travel may be suppressing it. So I looked at the flu no numbers recently, and they're, they're very, very low in the U.S., thankfully. But, um, you know, I'd like to be an optimist, but uh, I got to think it's going to come back, and then we'll have a lot of the same issues. Um, and people may have not have gotten their flu shots this year, too. Okay. Again, a good plug now. Now the flu shots are available to uh, get your flu shots. Just got mine. Awesome. Joe, we've talked with COVID a lot about how infectious it is, how it's transmitted, how infectious it is. Talk to us about RSV virus. How infectious is RSV in relation to something that we all know about, COVID infectivity and even flu infectivity? How would you rate them? Um, well, they're different. You know, I think when we, when we had, uh, and before the pandemic and, and, and the early guidance, they were kind of expecting it might be similar to RSV, I think, large, large droplets on surfaces. That was all the emphasis about drugs, gloves and cleaning, you know, areas and stuff like that. And it turned out that it was aerosolized, you know, and that people can spread it very effectively certain you know certain people uh and, and, they, and they may not even be know they're infected and can spread it you know very easily rsv is not like that you know it's it's it goes mostly in large droplets 
And uh, a lot of the what we know is from these elegant experiments done by Dr. Carolyn Brees Hall and others where they had nurses, you know, care for the patients up close or not caring for them and farther away. And, and they could trace out how far droplets would go in the room. But they do stay contagious for quite a while in surfaces. So, um, so it's RSV is pretty contagious, you know, in a typical environment where you have a child with a lot of mucus uh, that you need to care for and a young baby, you know, you're going to be exposed to that. Great. And Joe, can you get RSV more than once? Is it, do you get it once a season? Can you get it more than once in a specific season of RSV? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, there are different types and, and it comes back differently slightly every year. But, you know, I think all of us probably get it every year uh, in pediatric emergency medicine and, you know, we develop immunity to it. Um, we don't have, uh, you know, so we don't get lower respiratory disease. We get more of an upper respiratory infection, but that probably can happen multiple times in a season, you know. So I'm sure both of us have excellent IV level, IG levels too. Great. Great. All right, Joe, let's talk about that uh, patient in triage now. Chief complaint, trouble breathing. Okay. You look at the age, you look to see if they have prior visits. Big picture, how do you differentiate a child with bronchiolitis? from a one with reactive airway disease slash asthma. And you sort of alluded bronchiolitis. So there is a little, I mean, uh, bronch asthmaitis you mentioned. Yeah, so yeah. is it the age of the child? Is it the time of the year? Is it a prior episode of wheezing? Or is it sometimes a family says they tried albuterol before and it worked? So how, it, it's not clear. I'm sure there's some gray, but who should we put in the category of bronchiolitis and treat as we're going to talk about shortly, versus those with asthma. Yeah, well, I think uh, I think that's a great question and a, and a hot topic in the research area. We could talk a little bit about the metabolomics and, and all the different studies going on trying to tease those different populations because it like it is a heterogeneous disorder. There's no question about that. But I think I think I would like a lot of things carve out one group of kids that we know a fair amount about. And then the other kids that we know a lot less about um, and have to kind of intuit or, you know, there's poorer studies. And the folks that we know a lot about are the young infants presenting with the first episode of wheezing in the wintertime. Because when you do a bronchiolitis study, you don't do it in the summer. <laughs> you, know, you do it in the wintertime because that's when all the kids come. But that's an important bias to think about with our research. It's all conducted between March and between November and March. Um, I've been parts of many bronchiolitis studies and they're done between November and March. So they are heavily loaded with young infants presenting in the winter with RSV. The median age is like five months. And they tend to try to have a pure crowd of, of kids who have never wheezed before. So that's what the evidence is based on. Then we have all the other kids that we see in our EDs that have wheezed before that are toddlers, that are older infants. And, and there is evidence as, as people start to tease apart the infant population, there does seem to be a, a clear two groups. There's the, the first one, the young infants with RSV, and then the older infants with rhinovirus. And uh, they seem to be more like a reactive population that, that would um, that would continue to wheeze for a period of time and might be more responsive to therapy. And we tend to treat them that way. And it's interesting if you look at how we treat, say, bronchiolitis in our own ED, we use more bronchodilators in the summertime. So it seems like we're picking up on that and uh, and thinking that may be a different group of children. So I wasn't going to ask you this joke because testing, a rapid respiratory testing for bronchiolitis, rhinovirus, et cetera, has sort of fallen out of favor. But it sounds like what you're saying is that may be a differentiator in determining who would benefit maybe from a trial of albuterol 
which we'll talk about shortly uh, when we talk about treatment for these respiratory pathogens. Your thoughts? Um, you could wonder that, but there's no evidence to say that's the case. And actually, in uh, in studies, say the, the larger multicenter studies, when they parse apart kids with RSV, RSV positive, RSV negative, they don't seem to react any differently to treatment. So I would love to be able to say that. And I think a lot of us focus on oh, family history of asthma, atopy. Those things all still don't seem to fall out. But you know, a lot of these studies are you know the meta analyses are combinations of small studies where you really can't do that, and the large studies haven't really looked at that in full detail. So something to be looked at in the future. But I I don't think we can tell you that that that's true from any of the research that we have. But uh, but maybe maybe that's to be determined. Right. All right. Before again we get into treatments, one other point I want to talk about, and you mentioned the young infants, maybe less than two months, maybe less than four months. And let's talk about what admission criteria, and I know, again, it's going to involve a lot of things, but especially for the young infants, is there a certain age child who, if they have bronchiolitis, you're going to admit, or what are the factors that you think about clinically regarding admitting young infants, especially the first few months of life with bronchiolitis? Yeah. Um, so bronchiolitis is very uncommon in the first month of life, probably related to that you know, maternal antibody and, uh, that you mentioned. So it's interesting. I don't think I've seen an increase in that yet, but maybe that's still to come. But uh, but um, it is uncommon to have clinical bronchiolitis in the first month of life, and and I think I would very likely admit a child in that age range if they have actual bronchiolitis because they're probably going to get worse. You also have the concern of apnea, which often presents before the clinical bronchiolitis season. But when people have looked at risk for apnea, it's typically in the first month of life for full term kids or less than forty eight weeks post conception for preterm kids. So you have that risk too. So I think it's reasonable to, you know, observe and watch a child under a month of age for sure. Uh, over that, you know, I don't know that we know that there's an increased risk. And I think you, you know, definitely some studies have shown that younger infants typically under three months of age have more likelihood of um, needing, you know, hospitalization. Uh, but that gets into kind of the chicken and the egg thing of like, well, because we're more likely to hospitalize them. <laughs> so, uh, so doesn't mean they necessarily needed it. So, you know, I, I kind of do you know, take take each one of those individually and, and how well the family can care for them and how comfortable they are and stuff. But I, I don't think there's any blanket. You know, it's, it's one of those factors that I put into the decision. Absolutely. All right. Let's talk about treatment. Okay. We could stop this podcast right now, Joe, and just say supportive care. Okay. But I do want to talk to you about a lot of the treatments that have been studied and get your expertise. First okay. thing, when a patient comes to triage, in addition to their regular vital signs, they get the fifth vital sign, and that's the pulse ox. All right, so talk to us about, number one, should the pulse ox remain on a child during their ED stay and ED treatment? And then what cutoffs do you have to say, hey, this oxygen saturation is too low, they need to be admitted, despite their relatively lack of increased work of breathing? Tell us what your thoughts are on pulse ox. Great. Yeah, I think this is a very interesting area, and there have been some really interesting research done on it, too. So uh, in the in the early days of the pulse ox, you know, I think before the pulse ox, you know, a moderate hypoxemia was just not recognized. Um, people didn't do blood, you didn't do blood gases on them. As the pulse ox arrived, we started to recognize that a lot of these kids who were maybe not that sick looking had pulse ox levels in the low 90s. And uh, some of the early research suggested those kids were more likely to progress, which which makes sense. They have clearly lower respiratory disease. And so that got rolled into, and also the early pulse oximeters were not very accurate. So there was a lot of wide margin around it. So a lot of these things like pulse ox under 94% got baked into our 
you know, hospital-wide criteria as a reason for admission or reason to initiate oxygen stuff. As we've have learned more, um, that's probably arbitrary. And, and the classic study on this was doc- done by Dr. Suzanne Chu and sick kids in Toronto, where they took those that child you're talking about at triage and put on a, a, a falsely altered oximeter that measured three points higher throughout the rest of the uh, ED visit compared to uh, the other half got the normal pulse oximeter. And that, that bias and concern was, was quite evident. The admission rate was substantially higher in the uh, kids who had the normal pulse oximeter about, uh, it was 41% in the kids who had the normal pulse oximeter and 25% in the one that read three points higher, statistically significant. And so, you know, we're definitely reacting to that mildly decreased pulse ox level. And the outcomes were the same. In fact, the revisit rate for the kids that were sent home uh, in the altered pulse oximeter group was lower than the one in the in the in the normal pulse oximeter group. So I think it really showed very elegantly. I, I don't know how she did the study. It was amazing uh, in a lot of ways that she was able to conduct this study and get everybody on board. But I think it really showed that um, probably we're making arbitrary decisions based on that, and we should be more objective. And really, the objective one is ninety percent. That's where the oxyhemoglobin curve breaks off. And so that's what's in the American Academy of Pediatrics guideline uh, as a, as an indicator that if they're persistently below 90%, they should receive oxygen and, and come in. And certainly, you know, you can use a lower pulse ox as a factor, but I definitely would not use it as a primary driver in admission to the hospital because she then did a follow-up study where they followed kids who went home from the ED and measured their pulse ox levels at home. And, and to no one's surprise who's ever taken care of a bronchiolytic in the hospital, many of them had desaturations at home and, and otherwise well kids. Uh, and we know that other commonly encountered clinical scenarios like going up in an airplane or high altitude can re- result in, in transient hypoxemia. So trolling for a low pulse ox level on an ED visit probably doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, can we take the pulse ox off at triage and just do spot checks? That probably would be ideal. Um, it's just probably practically difficult, you know, putting the ox, pulse ox back on and off. And, and, you know, clearly if the child goes to sleep and they drop down to 85 for a period of time, that's that's meaningful. We probably want to admit that child. But, you know, I try not to uh, to be looking for that. And certainly on the inpatient side, they've done a lot of work trying to get pulse oxes off of infants that are improving. In, in, our, in our setting, it's harder because we're really trying to... to to you know, one individual assessment of a child with bronchiolitis is not very meaningful. So we're trying to get as much data as we can in a short period of time to decide what to do. So um, harder to just do spot checks there, but probably would be ideal. Great. Joe, those patients that you're sending home, borderline pulse ox, any role for home oxygen? Well, there's lots of research on this at high altitude uh, in Utah and Denver, especially where they do that. And, and they have a, a difficult challenge because the pulse ox levels in those kids are lower. So they have to kind of hide adjust it. And, and in their population, I think that is a primary driver of admission to the hospital. So using home oxygen is, is very effective from what I've heard. I just know, don't, you know, I'm often asked by them, why aren't you guys doing that down at sea level? And I just don't see that, you know, as being the primary driver, the, the pulse ox level itself. As long as we can, you know, parse apart what I just talked about, where we have these arbitrary rules that we put in ourselves, um, I don't see a lot of kids who aren't otherwise sick getting admitted purely for low pulse ox anymore. But, uh, uh, but you know, it's something we could explore. But uh, it's a lot of work to set that program up. Perfect. All right, Joe. Another treatment that we frequently use, not only at home in the pre-hospital setting, but also in the ED, and that is suctioning. Okay, a lot of times we say suction the baby prior to their feeding, 
This way they can breathe out of their nose when they eat. We know infants are obligate nasal breathers. Sometimes we use bulb syringe. Sometimes we use deep wall suctioning. Talk to us about the role of suctioning. And more importantly, has this been studied? Is there literature around bulb suctioning versus deep suctioning? Um, There's some literature on it. There was a study done at Cincinnati Children's looking at kids on the inpatient unit who got deep suctioned and showing that a lot of deep suctioning is associated with worse outcomes. But again, that's another chicken and the egg thing. The kids that are doing poorly are going to get more deep suctioning. So um, so hard to, to know what to do with that. I, they were implying that it was harmful, but I don't know that we know that's the case. Uh, in the uh, in the UK, they have a strong feeling about this, and they, their whole term is minimal handling. <laughs> don't mess with these babies. <laughs> Leave them alone. You're going to cause more harm than good. I kind of like that. It starts to fit there their mantra. But uh, um, the, uh, you know, in terms of home suctioning, I think we all know the bulb syringe is not the greatest device in the world and hard to do. Um, So there are these newer devices where you can use your own mouth as suction. And uh, there have been some randomized trials done on that. I don't think that the one that I've seen um, didn't show a reduction in revisits or anything like that, but the parents were very satisfied. And uh, we were talking about doing a study like this, but I I would say good luck trying to do that study because every parent I talked to already has one. And you could not take it away from them. <laughs> so, uh, so I think, you know, the more actually, uh, and the Canadians have a study, I don't know if they've ever started it, but it's called the snot trial. And it's about suctioning the nose uh, in bronchiolitis and looking at giving the family an electric device that's a better suctioning device to go home with. So at some point that will happen. Um, and uh, we may have better data on it. All right. And again, having witnessed it, never having done it because the nurses in our ED do it, deep suctioning very traumatic to the child. Is there efficacy? Should it be continued? What's your thoughts? Yeah, I think in general, the recommendation is you're, you're suctioning the upper nasopharynx, not deep. Yeah, you're not going, it's not like in the ICU or something. You're trying to clear the upper airway. And, and it really is, you know, to, when you see an infant, you know, and you examine them, it, it's remarkable how after just simple suctioning, it can change so much, you know, and what you thought was lung disease is actually upper airway disease, you know, so Clearly, a very important part of ED care is suctioning, but it should be really nasopharyngeal suctioning and not deep suctioning. Okay, great. All right, Joe, here's a pretty straightforward therapy that's been used for many, many years, sort of fallen out of favor, a trial of beta agonists. Uh, that's, yeah. I think, what, that's what you and I were trained on. In the most recent guidelines, literature, I don't see this trial of beta agonists even listed. So talk about how that evolved from us trying it figuring out what children respond and then continuing it to where we are now, where I think literally we're not even trialing it on those true bronchiolytic patients. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, and you can go back, the swing pendulum can swing back and forth there. I've got a lot of perspective on this because I was part of the AP Bronchiolitis Guideline Committee. And I remember when we talked about the trial of bronchodilators and the, the first guideline that came out said, don't use bronchodilators, but a carefully monitored trial is an option. Um, and I'd say I was actually kind of responsible for that, to be honest, because I felt <laughs> like you. I was trained to give it a try, and sometimes it seems to work, and what's the harm in giving it a try? But when you actually think about it and look at the – in between the two guidelines, a lot more studies came out showing lack of efficacy. And the reality of it is that um, all the kids in the ED with bronchiolitis improve over time, and we are very prone to attributing that to the therapies that we do. And when you have numerous, numerous randomized trials showing no benefit, it's hard to recommend it. And I think when we had that as an option, that was interpreted as a recommendation. And uh, so it didn't really have much of an impact on use of bronchodilators, particularly in these younger infants that 
I think we all know that a four or five month old with RSV bronchiolitis probably doesn't respond very well to bronchodilators. They may respond, and actually, some of the studies would say that some of them may get worse. You know, it makes them tachycardic, and it it can cause ventilation, perfusion, mismatch in the lung, and make them hypoxic for a little bit. So some of them may get better, some may get worse, some may be unchanged. Uh, but the overall evidence is really quite convincing that there's not any overall clinical benefit, so it's hard to recommend it. That's you know, again, in studies primarily done in younger infants during bronchiolitis season you know, with RSV. And uh, so older infants with rhinovirus could be a little different. And I, I think we need more studies that look at that. Unfortunately, when you put together a bunch of small studies, you can't do sub-analyses like that because they, they're not enough. They're not, you can't just can't do it. You need a large, large multi-center studies to really do sub-analyses. Great. And uh, a little bit further along, Joe, we're going to talk about the future. What studies need to be done, if any? Mm -hmm. Let's shift to another treatment, Joe steroids. Cool. Again, maybe for the young children with bronchiolitis, and also you could talk about maybe the ones one or one or two who sort of maybe have had albuterol in the past. Is there any role for steroids in the treatment of bronchiolitis today? Yeah. So I mean, there's some great research on this. Um, so the PCAR network, our first randomized trial was an oral steroid study, very simply done. Um, kids with the first episode of wheezing, randomizing the steroid, one dose of dex or not, and um, they got otherwise normal standard care. Many of them got bronchodilators at that point in time, and showing really no benefit overall or in any subgroup, RSV positive, RSV negative, young, old, whatever, you know. So that seemed pretty convincing. The Canadians then did do uh, a really well-designed factorial design study with epinephrine and steroids, and the group that got very aggressive therapy with repeated epinephrine doses and high-dose steroids for five days had a slight trend towards improvement in admission rate um, over the seven days. It did, when you do the adjustment for multiple interventions in factorial design, it didn't quite meet statistical significance. So that was kind of hanging out there. If you look at the benefit, it would be you'd have to treat 11 kids with high-dose steroids and epinephrine to prevent one hospitalization so that you'd, have, you'd wonder about that trade-off also. Uh, but that study is being redone right now, so we'll hear more about that. So I, I don't think the, the jury is completely out on steroids for all infants with bronchiolitis. It could be that there might be, you know, in the future more evidence on that. Uh, but for now, I would say, particularly in the classic infants with bronchiolitis we've been talking about, the strongest evidence that we have is that there's no benefit uh, and uh, and we shouldn't be administering them. Okay. But like you said, more on that in the yeah. future yeah. when these studies uh -huh. become... Uh... And, and I would say I've started to observe, and we may have gone a little overboard with this, you know, again, our studies are in infants and all that, and people are generalizing that to one and two-year-olds uh, with asthmaitis, <laughs> you know, that kind of look like the little kids uh, and saying, oh, you know, steroids don't work in that. And I, I would say we don't know that. And in fact, the studies that include older children, um, and there was a very nice study done in Australia on young children, preschool-age children with wheezing, where there was debate about that and showing benefit in the ED setting of giving steroids. So. Myself, in kids over a year of age, um, I will trial bronchiolators and I will give them steroids. And I feel perfectly comfortable about that with the current evidence that we have. And and uh, and I feel like many of them respond. But uh, it's the five-month-old with RSV bronchiolitis that we want to avoid that in because that's a huge number of kids. And, and there are potential side effects of steroids in young children. And it'll be interesting, Joe, this, this current season that we're in, knowing that these one- and two-year-olds may actually have RSV infection that the treatments that you're giving, we'll see if they're as efficacious as they have been in past years for, for you and the group. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think I think we don't know, but I, I think you have to err towards, uh, and the question is when you don't know something, do you err towards not doing it or doing it? And uh, when you're facing a headwind like we are right now, I think being aggressive is appropriate personally. Absolutely, absolutely. 
Joe, there are two other treatments that we infrequently use. I think I read about these treatments more in, in research trials with them. And those are nebulized hypertonic saline and nebulized epinephrine. Your thoughts about these two modalities? Sure. Hypertonic saline. In the ED setting, there is, is a wide variety of results. One study showing some benefit. We did a small study at CHOP with your, your prior guest, Todd Florin. It was his fellowship project and actually seemed like they got slightly worse with it, which, which might actually be the mechanism. It makes them cough up all their mucus and, and you give it repeatedly. On the inpatient side, it doesn't seem to um, clearly reduce length of stay and it's not recommended. Um, so I think we've pretty much moved away from that, uh, especially in the ED setting. It was hard to know. You give one dose of that, what are you going to do after that? So uh, I think that's moved off uh, the focus. Epinephrine is still, you know, interesting. And, and um, unlike albuterol, there are, are a number of studies that show that, that epinephrine probably does have a short-term effect. Um, if we look at look at them, it's quite different, actually. The kids do respond, and, and you see that um, at the bedside. And it probably works differently. It's more of a, a decongestant. You know, it helps dry out their airways and upper airway. Uh, but the problem is you can't continue to use it at home. I guess you could give, you know, epinephrine by an inhaler. And I've, I think in some countries where they use epinephrine, they're starting to do that in the ED with concern about aerosol generation for nebulizers. But it's not really a safe medication to give at home. So you give it once, you see a response. Where does that leave you? So I think that's why we've moved away from that, because uh, in general, the studies show that you may reduce that that day's admission, but uh, overall, the including revisits, your admission rates are not decreased. Great. Joe, I think I threw the toolbox of therapies at you, and uh, most of those, you basically return to the toolbox. But there is a therapy, Joe, that has left the toolbox and is increasing dramatically, and that is high-flow nasal cannula with or without oxygen. Talk to us about what are the indications for the use of this therapy in the ED? Well, yeah, this is certainly the hottest topic right now, and it's, it's exploded in use, and I, I'm sure um, this winter will, will be a high point for that. Yeah, so, you know, it, it works by providing high flow of oxygen. Um, it does a number of things. It's humidified, it, it's um, heated, so it's good for the airway. And it provides some positive pressure. And uh, if you've ever done it, I, I encourage you, if you ever have an opportunity to try it, it's an interesting sensation. You just kind of lie there and you can stop breathing for a while because <laughs> it's <laughs> it's just flowing through your airways, getting rid of CO2, putting oxygen in. Um, and in the younger infants, it can definitely provide some positive end expiratory pressure and stent the airways and stuff like that. So, you know, we certainly see kids get it and they, they look more comfortable. And um, so what do you do with that? I think it's very convincingly been shown in multiple randomized trials that it does nothing for the overall disease course. The length of stay of the kids that are treated with high flow is the same as those who don't. So it's not like it's going to hasten them through the disease course. It's support. It's another form of supportive care. It is, you know, I think it's a tough one because it's it's not cheap. If you, in RED in our hospital, if you're on high flow, you get hourly assessments by a respiratory therapist. There's the equipment. I mean, there's quite a bit of cost involved in putting someone on that. And what I've seen that's made me more concerned is our admission rate, as our high flow rates have uh, gone up, we've seen a slight bump in our admission rate too. So if you initiate it too early and say, well, this kid needs high flow, but you haven't really given them the time, the reassessment um, to determine whether they even need to come in the hospital, uh, you may be committing them to an unnecessary hospitalization. So there's a lot of potential cost. The flip side, you know, on the hospital floor, I think, you know, it may uh, make the children easier to care for, for the nursing staff and the hospitalists. And it may keep some kids out of the ICU. Certainly when we rolled it out, we did it in a very cautious way and probably caused more harm than good. 
because we would put it on in a in a way that wasn't very effective and then you would see turn it up and they look much better so then that became a reason to go to the ICU so we 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 generated a reason for ICU admissions by using it over cautiously now that we're using it more aggressively and I think we do have good data from the randomized trials to say that it is safe to give on the inpatient floor uh, a patient on high flow as long as they're you know not in severe distress and so you know I think now once we have it since the, the cat is out of the bag on that um, using it effectively we can prevent some kids from going to the ICU potentially. So I think we just need to try to use it in the right population of kids who are, you know, near ICU level treatment and uh, may avoid that admission or or may make things easier for everyone by putting it on those kids, but not on the milder kids and uh, trying to use it as selectively as possible. And Joe, what are the downsides of its use? Obviously, there's a risk, probably less than 1% of pneumothoraces I've seen in the literature uh, cost, I guess, labor intensive. I guess it may interfere with their feeding also. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it can gen- definitely. And then the large randomized trials, most of which were done in Australia and New Zealand, um, they did typically feed the kids on high flow. Um, typically, they got an NG tube and they, they're very, very big on NG tubes down there, by the way. Um, they, they rarely put IVs in kids with bronchiolitis, which I think is a nice safety thing. And we worked on that in our inpatient units. Um, so NG tubes work well in kids who are having trouble with feeding due to bronchiolitis. Um, but they also let them orally feed. And I think if a kid stabilizes on, uh, on high flow, they can, they can feed orally um, if they are comfortable. We certainly see that. Uh, and they can also be fed by NG. Great. Joe, in summarizing many of the studies of treatment for bronchiolitis, there was a recent study in pediatrics I'm sure you're aware of. It was called a network meta-analysis. I think the word network talked about transitivity, which hopefully you could explain to myself and to our listeners. Talk to us about this study. Looked at all the different prior studies of different treatments, compared a lot of the studies, and came out with a few conclusions. Let me just give you some of the conclusions they came out with, and then you could sort of knock them down a little bit. They found that the combination of nebulized hypertonic saline and beta agonists or nebulized epinephrine decreased admission rates on day one, and also the combination of hypertonic saline and epinephrine decreased lengths of stay, although they did talk about the low strength of evidence. So talk to us about this network meta-analysis and your take on this article and uh, what it means regarding treatment for bronchiolitis. Yeah, I'm not I'm not very familiar with that technique, but it's a way to try to do meta-analysis and interrelate all the different study designs. You know, it's it's a way to take a bag full of apples and oranges and try to try to do something with that um in a more, you know, uh rigorous way. Both of those things that you said uh, have been conclusions of other meta-analyses. So yes, we racemic epinephrine does reduce admission on day one um, in the Cochrane analysis of studies that have looked at that. It's just it doesn't by day seven. <laughs> so uh, so uh, it's you know because we know it's it's just acting for a short period of time. So um, so I wouldn't disagree with that. And, and as I mentioned, some of the some of the hypertonic saline studies, which are just a very different results um, and are hard to know when you have that heterogeneity in, in study design. So I, I don't know. I think uh, I like sort of classic meta-analyses where they try to lay out the result, the different studies and interpret them, you know, both mathematically and also in a, in a you know, and that's the role for guidelines too, because uh, we can take the evidence and experts who have dealt with the disease all their lives and our clinicians also can try to interpret it in a practical way. Great, Joe. You gave an excellent summary, Joe, uh, on high-flow nasal cannula. And I think not only us locally, but internationally, the use has exploded. And I think you 
very clearly uh, identified who should be initiated on it. All the other treatments, Joe, based on meta-analysis, things like that, very low strength of evidence. So give me, what is your sort of summary statement? And we can focus, like you said, on the first year of life, bronchiolitis. What, if anything, are you doing to the moderately to severely ill child who shows up in your ED tonight with moderately to severe bronchiolitis? Let's take the six-month-old previously healthy child. Yeah, so I think um, suctioning, <laughs> making sure they're well suctioned, observing them for a period of time and you know, um, not making all your judgments based on a single assessment because you, you, you will be amazed how the variability in this condition is. And um, you know, I've seen kids that came in very distressed and within an hour or two were calmed down and the family was comfortable taking them home and, and that was fine and they didn't seem to come back. So m- repeated assessments, suctioning, supportive care, um, kind of getting the big picture for the family that, that hardly anyone dies of bronchiolitis. Um, it's not a life-threatening disease in general, and it's very common. And uh, setting expectations about the fact that it's going to take several weeks for this to resolve, and there's going to be those ups and downs, and the child's going to wake up in the middle of the night with a lot of mucus and need to cough that out and look look terrible for a little while, That that and that we have nothing great to offer <laughs> because uh, that's the truth. And I think that's surprising. And many times families might think we're, we're holding back on something, um, particularly if, they, if they're um, not trusting in our, in our environment. So really being clear about all that. And when you do that, I think, um, you know, obviously a kid who's, who remains in moderate to severe distress, you, you have to capture, factor in, you know, where they are in their illness. Are they early on in the first day or two? Or are they, are they progress to peak? But uh, you can make a, a shared decision-making approach as to whether they need to come in or not. If they're quite severe and um, and you know on the verge of what could be handled on an inpatient floor, I think high flow is a good option there, and uh, may make it more likely for them to be handled outside of the ICU. Joe, regarding admission criteria for bronchiolytics, in the recent infant febrile guidelines that just came out, they talked about shared decision-making, and frequently at the bedside in a child that I think should go home, but it's a first-time parent. They're on their day three or four of illness. The child just had a rough night the night before. The parent's not comfortable going home. Talk to us about, is your admission decision a shared decision model? Um, I, I think it should be always. And I, I think, I, you know, I, I think we've all seen that parent and, and at least Going through the things I mentioned, helping them to understand that that there we don't have therapies that we're not going to do anything differently in the hospital than they might do at home, and that this is an extremely common condition. Uh, you know that all infants will get at some point, and and that they will make it through. Um, so, kind of setting those expectations are, are really important. I think on the flip side, a lot of times I see kids where you know I may be somewhat worried, and when I go through that, the family's like, well. Why would I want to come in the hospital? You know, I could do that at home. And uh, and uh, that's great. Uh, and, you know, I, I always might conclude with, we are always open 24 hours if you need to come back and, and let people know that they may need to come back, especially if I'm pushing the envelope a bit uh, on a child early in the illness. And, and many families are very happy to take that risk, particularly when they see long waits in the emergency department for an inpatient bed. Great. Perfect, Joe. I always like to ask uh, our experts, and obviously, Joe, you're not only a clinical expert, but a research expert in this area, what is the future? And actually, doctors Lipshaw and Florin, in an editorial to that meta-analysis study I alluded to, were quoted as saying, do we need more rigorous studies of different treatments 
Should we study racemic epine? Should we study hypertonic saline? Or is it time to educate practitioners to curb the rampant use of ineffective therapies? Which is it? Both of them? Is it one of them? I think it's uh, both. I, um, jo- yeah. Joe, uh, I, <laughs> I allude to one of our former uh, podcast guests, Dr. Paul Offit, when asked on an interview many years ago, how many more studies need to be done to show that the MMR vaccine does not cause autism? His reply was, for every dollar that's spent in that next study, okay, could be much better spent in looking at the true cause and treatment for autism. Stop wasting money on MMR autism studies. What is your thought? Do we need more rigorous studies or is it time to say your summary statement is what it is, Joe? Now we need to curb the rampant use of these other therapies because, again, we see such a wide array of therapies in many places, in many patients, who, many physicians who care for patients with bronchiolitis. Yeah, um, well, I think um, the, the combination steroid epinephrine therapy, that Canadian study, I think does deserve, because it was sort of equivocal, does deserve being repeated. And it is being repeated. That, that was the CANBEST study. There's the CANBETTER study. Unfortunately, it was being done during COVID. So, <laughs> so they're going to take them quite a while now, but that, they should be in good shape now this year. But um, so I think revisiting that question of is, is there, what is there a benefit for aggressive therapy? But probably more importantly, in my mind, is instead of, I don't think we need a lot more, you know, large studies of bronchodilators for all comers under a year of age, but but starting to tease apart the different phenotypes that the more basic science research is identifying, and is there a way we can identify different clinical phenotypes that really do deserve different treatment? And I think a lot of clinicians, when they saw that guideline come out about bronchodilators, said, well, I, I really feel like the you know, 11-month-olds with recurrent wheezing should be treated, and and I think they should too. But uh, we need to be able to give some better guidance to people on that um, and start to parse about out some of the subgroups. And there are a lot of therapeutics actually for RSV coming down the pike. There's a, there's a whole raft of them of uh, immunoglobulin therapies. There's a new vaccine that's being tested, from what I understand, uh, and some small molecules that are interesting that that block binding to the cell. So I, I wouldn't give up hope that it will be supportive care for all of the rest of our lives. There may be other therapeutics coming down down the line that will help. Great, and you alluded to Joe prevention. Obviously, we know Synergis is given monthly to high risk infants. You talked about an RSV vaccine, which has been talked about since the 1960s. And actually, yeah. I think with one, some of the first few vaccines, some infants actually died after receiving the vaccine. Some had worse symptoms. There's talk, like you said, Joe, vaccinating pregnant moms with some type of RSV vaccine to decrease the chance of illness in their children, and also some type of intranasal delivery of these vaccines to infants. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Any words on those or uh, where we're at? Because again, they've been discussed for a long time uh, now. Yeah, I, I'm not an expert on vaccine RSV development, but um, I know, yes, that, that 1960s study where it actually caused seemed to cause worse disease, which Paul Offit's taught, taught me some interesting things about that, you know, set this area back quite a bit. But uh, the newer vaccines and, and, you know, with mRNA vaccines and things like that, I think we're seeing a whole whole, you know, new horizon of, of vaccines. So I, I would think there would be good hope that we could have an RSV vaccine at some point. I don't know, they right. are being tested. Awesome. Joe, I, I like to give you the last word. I think you've aptly summarized treatments. You sort of talked about different phenotypes of children, those younger children and then those older children, and where those older children may benefit some of the therapies that we talked about. What's the future, Joe? First, I can ask you, is this season going to end in March or is this a 12-month-a-year disease now? 
Um, I don't know. Yeah, some of the modeling studies suggest that this will be, you know, the largest RSV season ever, and then it could still echo out for several years after that because of all those kids that missed it the first time. So it, we may be in for a long ride on that, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> and uh, I, I can't see it going away before the winter, it, it, you know, but we can always hope that, uh, you know, it sort of depends on how much social distancing is happening this winter and, and how how widely it spreads. Um, so that will be interesting to see, but can't really predict that. Great. And you're cautiously optimistic, Joe, in addition to high flow nasal cannula as supportive care, that some of these other treatments, whether it's steroids, other nebulized treatments may be on the horizon, may show some benefit in studies that are either currently being done or being planned. Yeah. I'm hopeful that with all the things there, that there, there will be other things, uh, especially the prevention type things that, that really could help. So I'm certainly always an optimist. You know, I think in the meantime, this is one disease that really tests your abilities as a clinician. And, and, I, and what I'll say as one aside, I'm a little concerned just with our, especially with our respite for a year and stuff, that a lot of the younger physicians have not seen kids with bronchiolitis that much. And so I think the older of us have to remind them of this, you know, what it's like and that, um, you know, kids can work to breathe. They don't all have to, you know, be completely asymptomatic on high flow nasal cannula. That's not necessarily an ideal outcome, um, uh, even though they, it may look like it's improved them. Um, it's not doing overall benefit and, and there is a lot of cost and intervention involved there. So we really should be reserving that for kids that are really severe uh, and that kids will get through bronchiolitis. We all did. Our kids all did. <laughs> it's a lot of doc doctoring to get them there, though, sometimes. Absolutely. Well, Joe, thank you for your expertise. On behalf of the Ch Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast team, I want to thank you for joining us. I will let you go now to have a glass of wine and maybe a few liters of high-flow nasal cannula since you <laughs> <laughs> uh, to relax you. And uh, again, thank you, Joe, for joining us. <laughs>